Turn to Matthew chapter 11 one more time. Matthew chapter 11, and Lord willing, we'll finish up this morning looking at verses 25 through 30. Matthew eleven twenty five through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." Father, once again, I ask you this day to do your work according to your will for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Sola gratia. It was one of the five solos that was announced and declared and preached and proclaimed by the reformers in the 16th, early 16th century, in the 1500s. The idea that salvation is by grace alone. It was a, a hot topic, no doubt. It was something that was debated. But according to Scripture, as I read it, and as I have just now read it, I think there is no debate that one is saved, who is truly saved, has been saved by grace alone. You are familiar with the popular verses as found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, the clear indication here is that one is saved not because of anything that they have done. They have been saved solely by the work of God, which is His gracious will to do to save some people for Himself. There's a misunderstanding that God wants to save or is trying to save or desires to save every single person. I am under the conviction if that was such a desire of His, then every single person would be saved. That would be the conclusion to draw if he is trying to say that God tries to save someone and is unable or does not, utters God, it makes God to be an utter failure. But we see here that this particular doctrine of grace alone separates the true biblical gospel from false gospels that teaches a salvation by works. There are many that teach such things. At a recent conference that was held this past week, a group infiltrated that conference by passing out literature, espousing that one is not justified by faith alone, but one must be justified, declared not guilty or innocent or righteous in the eyes of God, that one is justified by faith and works. It is based upon 
what you do and that if you're not um, doing works, you're not saved. Now, I understand what James says here, that faith without works is dead. And I understand what he is saying when he talks about Abraham was justified by his works. But make no mistake about it, Abraham was not saved because of his works or by his works. The works of Abraham demonstrated his faith in God to be a saving faith. It comes as a result of, uh, the works come as a result of the saving faith and does not produce the salvation. Now, this is a dominant teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that one is saved by faith and works. And if one espouses justification by faith alone, as I do, uh, according to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, a person like myself is to be anathematized. That's a big word that just basically means to be condemned to hell. And yet how many people are they leading to the very same hell by teaching them that because of what they have done they are now justified before God. One is not given grace because he has done something. For at that moment, if something was given based upon what you have done, it would no longer be considered grace. It would be considered payment for what you have done or reward for what you have done. We're not saved by works then we would be able to boast in ourselves what we thought, what we did, what we prayed. Now, I'm not saying one should not confess the Lord or one should not pray the sinner's prayer or that anyone who walks an aisle, those things are evil or wicked. They're not. But I'm here to tell you, there's not a single one of those things that a person is saved by. One is saved by grace alone. And God extends His grace as a result of his extension of grace, one responds in faith and repentance. As we read earlier in our scripture meditation in Romans chapter 9, where Paul records these words as God said in verses 15 to 18, he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Is this not the right of God? Is he obligated to be compassionate or merciful to every single person? God would not have lost a single ounce of any one of his attributes if he would have condemned from Adam all the way down to us, everyone to hell. He would have been just and fair in doing so. But by His grace, He chose to save a people in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world. So He says, and this is Paul's argument that he's presenting in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. It's not how much you want it. It's not how much you desire. It's not how sincere you are. How many times have I said, and you've heard other preachers say, if you prayed that prayer and meant it and were sincere, then you were saved. That is wrong. It's not of him who wills, nor of him who works. 
but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Paul concludes, so then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now I know for some, and it was true of myself as well, that there are some that question the goodness of this reality. But I want you to hear clearly here the ramifications of these things are not true. If God did not choose to be gracious to some, which he's not required to be gracious to any, then none would be saved. Who can be saved apart from God's grace? And if His grace is dependent on anything you and I say, think, or do, it's no longer grace. This is why so many struggle whether they're truly saved, because what are they doing? They're looking to themselves. What did I do? Did I really mean it when I prayed it? Did I trick myself? Did I fool myself? Did the pastor manipulate me? Was it an emotional response? Whatever. No. One who is truly saved has been saved by grace. Now our passage this morning, I believe, espouses the grace of God. And then the peace that one enjoys in the inner man in coming to Christ. Find rest for your soul. See, rest for me doesn't come because of I'm a pastor. Or I have prayed, or I have read the Bible, or that I believe what it says. Rest comes to my soul because I know Jesus did what he did on the cross. He did it for me. That's how I have rest or peace in my inner man. Now, this is a great and complex section of Scripture. Matter of fact, many avoid it, don't want to look at it. They jump quickly to verses 28 through 30. And I've heard a gazillion sermons on 28 through 30. I have heard very few, if any, sermons on on verses 25, 26, and 27. It is great in that it expresses the hope that is found when one comes to Jesus. But it is complex as it expresses that the only ones that know to come are those that the Father reveals to them. And I know there's a struggle with this. I would ask you, if there is a struggle with you, just to continue to study God's Word and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. Because God did not go to the Egyptians. He did not go to the uh, Assyrians. He didn't go to the Amalekites or the Moabites or the Jebusites or any other bites. He chose a people of the descendants of Abraham. Why? Because they first received him or asked him or sought him? Because it was his gracious, kind act to do so. And they are a shadow or an antitype or a picture of what was to be fulfilled in Christ, the true Israel, and we Gentiles being grafted in the church. For one is a Jew, not who is one outwardly, one who is a Jew who is one inwardly, for circumcision is of the heart. And God puts his seal, his Holy Spirit, upon all who have believed. So let's make sure we are basing our understanding of God on his word. So three observations I want to make this morning on this passage as we have before us uh, this morning, just to look at it and break it up a little bit and to talk about it. First of all, we see the prayer of grace. The prayer 
of grace. We have in our text that Jesus at that time, the scripture says, prays to God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so he prays this prayer. It's a short prayer. It's a sentence prayer. He, he probably prays it in the earshot of people around him. In other words, people heard what he was praying. Now, this is not uncommon of Jesus. Many times we see he prayed where others could hear. If not, then how do we have his prayers recorded? But anyway, he prayed where others could hear. An example of this is at the tomb of Lazarus. After he, he preaches and he calls into question the faith of Mary and Martha, he, he prays to God. And then he, while he prays to God, he says in John chapter 11, verse 42, he, he said to God, the Father, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So when he prayed at the tomb of Lazarus out loud for others to hear, he did so not because God wouldn't hear him, so he had to vocalize the prayer with his vocal cords for God to hear, but he did so so others could hear what he was saying and then believe. So he prayed with intentionality. And I think this is the same case again. This is a short prayer. We just got through studying uh, the book of Nehemiah uh, in the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. And there are many one-sentence prayers that Nehemiah that is recorded in the book of Nehemiah that he prayed. And, and here we have a similar instance, but this time it is Jesus. He is praying to God the Father. And knowing this fact that Jesus prayed where others could hear to teach them something, the question is, what was it he wanted to teach them? And by the way, this debunks the idea that when Jesus taught on prayer, as we read in Matthew chapter 6, that he taught we should never pray publicly. There is no forbidding of praying publicly. It's the attitude in which we pray publicly. He says, don't be like the Pharisees who want to be seen and heard of men. See, so many people twist scripture and take it out of context. He never said not to pray publicly. He himself prayed publicly many times. And in this case, he did so so others would hear what he had to say. And so make sure your beliefs are based upon the word of God and not on man's opinion or feelings. But what was it Jesus wanted to pray in this, uh, teach through his prayer that he prayed? Well, first of all, we see that he gives thanks to God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Which is interesting here because this is on the tail end of everything he just said, particularly as we looked at last week where he said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works that have been done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, guess what? Long ago, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And woe to you, uh, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? But if you, you know, you will be brought down to Hades. Why? Because if the works were done in you in Sodom, they would have repented, but they would have remained until this day. But he tells them both, all of them, that it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and for Sidon and for uh, uh, Sodom than it will be for them. Now, I don't know while I was preaching that if you didn't ask the question that, I also, that I've asked myself. Well, Jesus, if you knew they would repent if you did the works there, why you didn't do the work there? Now, of course, this is getting into the mind of God and it's the work of God, and I'll just leave it at that. But it still has the question. I think in this prayer that Jesus prays, we kind of find an answer. And as we read in Romans chapter 9, he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will 
harden whom he will harden. The question isn't why people go to hell. The real question is, why is anybody saved and goes to heaven to be with God? Everybody deserves hell. There's not going to be a single person in hell that says, I don't deserve to be here because, God, you didn't work hard enough to save me. But I can guarantee you, every person in heaven will say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. I don't deserve to be here. So Jesus, right after teaching this about, about Sodom and Tyre and Sodom, uh, uh, coming down on Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, he thanks God the Father. He, he gives thanks. He gives thanks for who God is. He gives thanks for what God does. And I think this teaches us something about prayer, though this sermon today is not about prayer, but this should be basic to all our prayers, being thankful to God for who He is and what He has done. And I will also add on to that and what He's going to do. But anyway, that should be basic. Foundation to all our prayers should be a prayer of thanksgiving. So many times all our prayer requests are anything but thanksgivings. I'm appreciative this morning in the men's studies class, there was a couple of praises given. I'm thankful for that. Because so many times it's like, you know, I'm having this done, I'm having that done, I'm hurting, I'm having, you know. And yes, we should make those things known. Absolutely. Bring your petitions before the Lord. But foundational to our prayers should be this idea of thanksgiving. Thankful that we can even come to God with our problems and our issues and what we're dealing with. Because He could have left us to ourselves but Jesus is first of all thankful for who is God who is God well look in this prayer what he prays I thank you what he calls him he first of all calls him father and then he says Lord of heaven and earth what does this mean father obviously this is a familial relationship family Father and Son is the way they interacted here. Uh, God, uh, Jesus was not less than uh, God the Father. He was of the same essence as we read in Philippians chapter 2. But He emptied Himself and took on flesh as a man. But we see that they have this loving, familiar relationship as they refer to each other as Father and as, as Son. And Jesus even taught His disciples in Matthew 6 when they asked to teach us to pray. In the model prayer, Jesus said, then pray this way. Our Father, we too are to enjoy this familial, this, this family relationship with God the Heavenly Father. And we, not as His only begotten children, but as His adopted children. Begotten of man, but now adopted into His kingdom. And part of His kingdom. And so, all who are in Christ are adopted children of God. And, and Jesus refers to Him this way, I thank you, Father. He calls Him, first of all, Father. He understood this close connection He enjoyed with God the Father. But not only He, we all do. But He calls Him also Lord of Heaven. What does this mean? Who is God as Lord of Heaven? This means He's supreme authority. He is sovereign over Heaven, over the Kingdom of Heaven. His throne is there. Not that God actually has a literal throne that He sits on. He's a spirit. He's all where, everywhere all the time. But for us to understand and try to picture and to, to describe God and who He is, He has a throne in Heaven from which He rules supremely over all things there. He he is the, the authority, the supreme authority. There is no appealing higher than to God Himself. He is all authority, and He rules from His throne in heaven. And all in heaven are subject to Him. Everyone is, everything is subject to, to Him. But this isn't the extent of God's domain. For Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of what? Heaven and earth. 
So he's Lord of earth as well, which means as well, he is supreme authority on earth. He rules over all the earth and all are subject to him. Whether they accept that reality or not, whether they realize that reality or not. He is sovereign over all things. As we looked in Romans 9, where he says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I I raised you up, that I might demonstrate my power and my name be proclaimed in all the earth. But ain't right. Pharaoh didn't have a chance. Pharaoh could have repented and believed on God any time he wanted to. That's a problem. He never wanted to. But by God's grace, those of us are saved. We wanted to. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. We'll get to that in a moment. And in the same manner, as the adopted children of God, God is our Father. And we recognize Him as Lord of heaven and of earth. And does as He pleases for His glory. Now this is who He is, but what has He done? Jesus explains a little further. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Some he was gracious to, and others he kept it hidden from. As we looked at the prior cities in the previous passage, as we looked at that last week, and the woes were issued to the unrepentant, and if the works had been done in those cities, they would have repented. But the bottom line is they all, those where Jesus did his works, and those where he didn't do his works, they would all be judged on judgment day. Here's the reality. Jesus doing miraculous works does not guarantee one to be saved. What does? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have kept this hidden, these things. What things? Well, obviously the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I also would say the person of Jesus Christ. Because remember, up until this point, what is Matthew doing? What is Matthew writing about? What is he trying to convince the people of? That Jesus is the promised Messiah that was prophesied centuries earlier that he would come. And so there's some, this information is being kept hidden from them, but not from all, because God has determined to save a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I thank you, Father, that you kept it hidden. It's your prerogative. It's for your glory that there's vessels prepared for destruction. To demonstrate your wrath, as we read in Romans chapter 9. But by the demonstration of your wrath on them, guess what? Your grace is exponentially revealed to all because everyone who has your grace bestowed upon, guess what? They deserve just as much and if not more so the wrath that you bestowed on them. But it was your gracious will to reveal these things to little children or babies as it's put there in the text. Now this word little children or babies, it means the simple-minded people. In other words, these are great things of God that the human mind, unless revealed to him, does not know, does not understand, cannot know, cannot understand. What does Jesus say? He says for us to come to him with childlike faith. Now, I want you to hear what that is saying. It is not saying to keep childish or immature faith, but to have a faith that is like a child. In other words, trusting like a child trusts. Believing like a child would believe. You tell children, 
certain stories and myths and fables, and they think these things to be true. But these things are not myths and fables. This is truth. You believe like a child. As he declares, you say what? I believe it. You said it. I believe it. I believe it because you said it because of who you are. And so he says here, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was God's gracious will to reveal the gospel to some. And his own mind and his own will and his own desires and his own purposes for his own glory. It was also God's will to hide these things from others. As he calls them here, the wise and understanding. I think that's kind of tongue in cheek as Jesus is saying that there. They're wise and understanding in their own eyes. So we have the prayer of grace. I thank you, Father, Lord and he- Lord of heaven and earth, that you have kept these things hidden from the wise and understanding, but have revealed them to little children. For such was your gracious will. Can that be your prayer today? Knowing that what you know of God has come to you only because God has revealed it and shown it to you, giving you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that understands that it wasn't based upon anything in you or through you or by you, but it's all based upon Him As we read in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The prayer of grace. But secondly, number two in this passage, we see the profession of grace. The profession of grace. And in verse 27, Jesus makes this profession. He makes this statement. Now, I don't know, and I didn't find in any commentary that, that would give me a satisfactory answer or even address the issue. Who is Jesus saying this to in verse 27? Is it the crowd around him? Is it to God the Father? If it's God the Father, the Father already knows this to be true, so he doesn't have to tell him. I'm not sure, but I think it's the crowd around him. Because they're probably asking, well, why didn't you go do the works over there? That's, that's, I would think that would be a natural question to ask after what he has just said as he prays this prayer and thanking God the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for hidden these things, uh, keeping these things hidden from some and revealing them to others. And he says in verse 27, here's the profession of grace. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Again, a gracious thing. What is Jesus saying here when He says no one knows? He's saying no one really knows. No one really knows the Son except the Father. The Father really knows the Son. And no one really knows the Father except the Son. And no one really knows the Father except the Son. And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 
Now he says here, all things have been handed over to me. What things have been handed over? Well, read it in context. It goes back to these things. What are these things? Again, the word and the work of the gospel, the personhood of Jesus Christ, all these things have been handed over. He didn't have to have the authority handed over. He says all authority at the end of Matthew has been given to me. But he has all authority. He never lost all authority. But these things, the word and work of the gospel, yes, but even the people themselves to whom these things will be revealed have been handed over to him by God the Father. It's an amazing thing that's happening here. This exchange that's happening between God the Father and God the Son. He looks at the earth. He looks at the population of humanity. He sees the wickedness and all the evil that's going on. And rather than once again, like he did in the days of Noah, and destroying it all, he determines, no, I'm not going to do it that way again. Although all this will come to pass, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, he looks at all of humanity, and out of humanity, he takes some, and he hands them over to the Father. And then Jesus comes by the gracious will of God. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hands them over to the Son. And the Son goes and does what he does to ensure that none that the Father has given him are lost. So that on that day, he will present us back to God the Father without blemish and without spot or without any mark. But pure and holy and righteous before God Almighty. These things have been handed over to God the Son. And all that the Father gives the Son, He chooses to reveal Himself to. Listen to what it says in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's a lot to say there. There's a lot to preach there. Won't get into it all today. This is one of the reasons why I don't believe a person who is truly saved can be truly lost. You cannot lose your salvation. It's clear here. He says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, he says, I will never cast out. To believe that you can lose your salvation is to say, Jesus, you're a liar. Because you're telling me that the Father may give me to you, and I have come to you, but now I can walk away from you where you're going to cast me out, and I'll lose this precious gift of salvation? Jesus said, no, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, I hope, if you're a child of God today, this should be encouraging you uh, beyond measure, this idea that you cannot be lost, that this is a work that was started with God, accomplished by God, and fulfilled by God, God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Spirit. Through all of this, this work that is transpiring, ensuring our salvation, truly we are saved by grace. As he says here, no one knows the Son except the Father. Or no one really knows the the Son except the Father. The word know in the Bible is an interesting word. If you ever want to do a word study, do a word study on the word know. Because it's it's a a lot more to it than the way we typically use the word know. We use the word know in terms of facts or or, or information. I know um, whatever. Just, you know, I I, I know... uh, 
football, or I know, you know, just name something. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, but we tend to say it in terms of uh, 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 knowing, in terms of knowing facts. But this goes beyond just factual information. It's not less than that, but it is so much more than that. Almost without exception, every time the word know is used, is used in a relational way. The idea of intimacy, a connection, a, a closeness. So when Jesus says no one knows the Son except the Father, he's talking about this intimacy, this, this relationship that is close that they enjoy. It gets to the essence of who each one is or the being of each one. It, it gets to the glory of each one. It gets to the will or the desires of each one or the, the purposes of each one or the, the mind of each one. They know each other, but no one knows the Son except the Father. The Father knows the Son, His essence, His being, His glory, His desires, His will, His purposes, His mind, and on and on and on. And God the Father has an intimate, knowledgeable relationship with God the Son to the point that he comprehends fully. The Father comprehends fully God the Son. There's not a single thing about God the Son that God the Father does not know. There's not an area of God the Son that God the Father does not have relationship to or with. And then Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. Again, same as before, the essence, the being, the glory, the will, the desires, the purposes, the mind. That God the Son has an intimate, knowledgeable relationship with God the Father. He comprehends fully the Father. There's not a part of the God the Father that God the Son does not relate to, does not know. He knows. Now here comes the profession of grace. And no one knows. Now in our case, we don't fully know or fully comprehend. But he says here, no one knows the Father except anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now why would Jesus do that? Why some the things are hidden, but others the things are revealed? So I'll leave you wrestling with that for a little bit, because if you're saved today, let me tell you why Jesus would do that. Because it was the gracious will of the Father to do so. It's not if you do this, if you do that, if you pray this, if you pray that, if you believe this, if you believe that, then God will. No, the truth and reality of the gospel in grace is this. Since God has revealed these things to you, since the Son has chosen to reveal the Father to you, repent. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. For he could have kept this, these things 
hidden from you, but by His gracious will, He has revealed them to you, so that all that He gives the Son, the Son would lose none that comes to Him, and by no means would cast them out on the last day, but raise them up unto everlasting life. The ones and only the ones who know God, who have any relationship, intimacy with God at all, are the ones who have been introduced to God as God revealed by the Son, that being Jesus the Christ. This makes me want to go back to the prayer at the beginning of the section. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. And earth. Because I gave him every, and I still, I give him every reason to keep me under condemnation, to keep me under his wrath, to cast body and soul into hell. And yet every day, God lets me know him more and more. Is it because I do right? No, it's because it's His gracious will to do so. Why He chooses to reveal to some and not to others, I'll leave that to Him. We'll debate that till Jesus comes, and I don't know if He'll ever tell us. But listen to what Jesus said in what I call the Lord's Prayer. Truly the Lord's Prayer. It's found in John chapter 17. I'm not saying the other prayer has been mislabeled, but in a way it kind of has. That's the prayer model or the model prayer that Jesus has given us. You know, our Father who art in heaven. But the Lord, this is the high priestly prayer. It's found in John chapter 17. Read and study that prayer at some point in time in your life. But in verse 3, Jesus declared this. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is eternal life, that, you, that they know you. Do you know him? What are you basing your eternal life on? A decision? A choice? A prayer? A membership? Attendance? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And here's the thing, if you know him, it was God's gracious will to reveal himself. There's nothing that I can say here, boy, I sure made a good decision. Boy, I'm smarter than the rest. Boy, man, whoo-hoo, I picked the winning team. It's, oh God, why would you be so kind and merciful and gracious to a sinner such as I. He goes on in his prayer in verse 6, John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name. I have made you known. That's what he's saying there. Manifested your name. Another just quick side note. Many of you know this. I've said this before. But when the Bible talks about name, it goes to character or attributes. It's not that God told him who God's name, you know, what was God's name. No, when he says, I manifested your name, he's talking about the character, the attributes. I let them know who you are. That's what he's saying. I have manifested your name to the people whom what? You gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Man, this gives whole new meaning to John chapter 14, verse 6, doesn't it? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one goes to the Father except through Him. Is it any wonder why people have such messed up views about who God is and what it means to be right with God and everything else? It's because they haven't gone through Jesus Christ. They've gone through philosophy. They've they've gone through religious systems. They've gone through every other thing and they walk away confused. They know not God. And the only reason you and I do is because it was his gracious will to make himself known. And in verse 9, Jesus goes on in John chapter 14. He says to him, Have I been with you so long? You still not know me, Philip? And he says this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Now look, we do not know God the Father and God the Son like they know each other, but we do know what has been revealed of them and we'll know so much more when we get to be with them forever and we'll learn for all eternity of this God that redeemed a people for himself by sending his son Jesus to be the propitiation for their sins. So many times people wonder, what will we do for all eternity? Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to know God more and more each and every moment we are in eternity until we fully know him, which guess what? We never will. We will always be knowing him more better. More and more. More and more. And just when you think you've Come to know all there is to relate God fully and all the ways He can be related to. You realize I'm still just a creature and He's the Creator. There is more to know. Who deserves to be shown who the Father is? No one. Maybe I heard somebody whisper Jesus. Yes, okay. But who needs to be shown who the Father is? Everybody does. But to whom will Jesus show the Father? I'll leave that in His hands. It's the profession of grace. And now we have the proposition of grace. Verses that you have heard many times. I don't think I'll be able to give you much more than what you already know. In verses 28 through 30, Jesus now declares, as He has prayed where people could hear, as He has um, professed, Who knows the Father and who knows the Son and who can know the Father? Now he declares the proposition. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says here, come. Now understand his audience who are burdened 
with the law and guilt upon guilt upon guilt for not keeping the law and the weight of the yoke. Don't think yoke in terms of so many have concluded from this verse that to be yoked with Jesus' yoke is to have me and him yoked together to plow that field like two oxen. We're going together. Although there's some truth to that. The idea is I have a yoke upon me. Think of a yoke that's across your shoulders with two heavy buckets of water or steel or concrete that you're trying to carry and you're just weighed down with this load that you're carrying and you're walking around trying to do right, trying to be right, trying to be accepted by God over and over and over again and the burden's just getting heavier and heavier and heavier and Jesus now says, no, come to me and take my yoke upon you. Now, Jesus has said, as we read previously in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, why do we come to Christ? It's not in of ourselves. It's of the work of the Father. The whole reason we even, when he says come and we come, we don't realize it at that moment, but when we come, we come because he has so drawn us and worked in us. I think this is why so many struggle with assurance of their salvation. The reason I am assured of my salvation is because I am not basing it on anything I have thought, said, or have done. I am basing my salvation all on the works of God through Jesus by His Spirit. I cannot pray sincerely enough to be saved. I cannot believe enough to be saved. I cannot repent enough to be saved. No, it's by grace through faith you have been saved, not of yourself. It is the gift of God. You come to Jesus because the Father draws you to Jesus. And this is a gracious thing because if this would not take place, guess what? No one, yourself included, would ever come to Christ. No one would come to Christ. For we love our sin and we love darkness and we hate the light. A change has to take place in our hearts and our wills to make us willing to come. Now who should come? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. What could burden a person so much? Well, obviously sin. And trying to obey that master, sin is an evil, hateful, spiteful, mean master. It is never satisfied with your works and always demands more than you can give. Jesus says to these to come and he will give you rest both here and now, but ultimate rest and glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. What does that mean? No more sin. None. No burden to carry. It's all gone, all dismissed, all cast into the lake of fire. It is done. It is destroyed. That day is coming. What should those who come to Jesus do? It says to take his yoke, to carry his yoke. What is his yoke? 
The world joke says do. The yoke of Christ says done. Eric, how can you not worry whether you're saved or not? How, how can you not be concerned about, about that? Well, if I look to myself, God, guess what? There's much to worry about. There's much to be concerned about. But I must take that yoke and cast it aside and put on the yoke of Christ where he declared on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. It's done. It is done. That's why Philippians 1, 6 is such a great promise. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All this stuff, we look at the mirror and we see, we say, oh, that's gross. You know, you look at a mirror of who you, who you are and, and God's word is a mirror. The law is a mirror. It acts that way. It reveals who we are and we look at that. But the day is coming that that will be complete and finished in a new work. Totally new. What is corruptible will put on incorruption. What is perishable will put on immortality. It is by God's grace, though, that you have been saved and not by works. Take on his yoke, he says, learn from him. Learn what? Who he is. Who is this one who so loved me that he would lay down his life for me? Who is this great shepherd that would lay down his life for sheep? Learn from him. Learn how to live from the, free from the bondage of sin. Oh, if time would allow. Verse upon verse upon verse. But let me give you three. Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again. Here's the word. To a yoke of slavery. John 8.36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, put on His yoke, right? The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So I would say today, child of God, one who is to become a child of God, find rest for your souls by coming to Jesus who is gentle, kind, and humble towards all that believe on Him. And come to Him. Proposition of grace. Salvation is truly by grace alone. Let me ask you this morning. Have you been saved by grace? Are you burdened with sin? Are you heavy laden with trying to earn God's acceptance? As the Father reveals the Son, come to Christ and He will give you rest. Take His yoke upon you and learn from Him and you will find rest, true rest, peace for your souls. Let's spend some time reflecting as Miss Anita comes in place.